name is David Bushman. I go by Bush, and it's just been that way for a long time, so that's why people struggle to know what to call me, but um, all the students call me Bush. Uh, oh, what a joy to hear from the youth and to realize the children are heading off next week and recognize that that's been happening here for a long, long time. My wife's a product of this church, and I was married here on this stage, and she went on mission trips, and I remember hearing some of those stories. So I love hearing uh, the stories of people figuring out things about Christ and about needs in this world and hearing them roast their leaders, Nate. I feel a certain <laughs> sympathy for you, brother, as I go on these trips and the students remember all these weird things about me, and you're like, how did that stick in your brain? Unbelievable. Uh, injuries on trips, unfortunately, uh, and questioning your faith, like, am I really making a difference here? What, what do we do? How does this work? Or, oh my gosh, I've been asked to share something. Is something God doing anything in me? Oh, I just, I just love hearing that journey, and that's been where I position myself with college students for the last 30 years, 20 of them down the road at Princeton and 10 before in Pennsylvania. And I'm fascinated by that idea of helping people try to figure out what it is about the faith that is real and how it intersects with me, with you. Uh, So I picked a text in Ephesians 2 that I really want students to understand. I want you to understand. I want myself to understand. But I have to say, it's not the easiest text for me because I like to want to know what to do. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Give me something. Give us a takeaway. And this is a text that's not going to help you there. What this text wants you to do is help you to understand some things that God has done, that God is doing, that then will enable you to do stuff. But if you don't get this part, you have a tendency to burn out, or you have a tendency to just, I don't know, just sort of lose interest because you're kind of doing it all on your own. And so this is a text about, I called it grappling with grace, uh, because I want to look at some bad news, some good news, and then I just want to turn some concepts over because I think grace is challenging. It doesn't seem to be how almost anything else in my world works. Job interviews aren't operating off of grace. Enrollment to schools, sports scores, perform It's just not a grace-based world that I'm living in, and yet this Christian faith is all about grace. And so I want us to try to kind of turn it over a little bit at the end. This is written to a church that Paul likes dearly, which is easy for me to identify. This is a church I like dearly. Uh, When he has very fond words to this church, he starts off right before it in chapter 1 by praying, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering you in my prayers. That's been true for me. I've not stopped giving thanks for this church, and I remember this church in my prayers. And they have remembered me in their prayers and financial support many times over the years. And then he goes on and says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, will give you, this Ephesians church, a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you'd be wise and that he'd reveal something to you so that you could know him better in order that you would know the hope to which he has called you. He wants them to know the hope, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. This is the end of chapter 1. Paul's praying, I want you guys to get a handle on how rich you are in Christ, what God has done for you, how much hope you have. Uh, that's what precedes this. And so then we get to my text where he talks a little bit about basically the gospel message. So this is, he's writing to a group of people he likes, he wants them to do well, uh, and he does the same thing in the book of Colossians, he does the same thing in the book of Romans, he talks about what God has done, and then he gets into the what they need to do. I'm going to focus on the what God has done part, and hopefully we'll understand why that matters to Paul uh, in there. The other thing I would say is if you're given the choice, you got some bad news and you got some good news, How many of you go for the bad news first? I'm clearly in this camp. Well, that's what our text is. So if you're a good news first person, sorry. You're going to have to hang tight for a few verses here. 
I'm like, all right, go ahead and give it to me. Just, just give it to me. What do I need to hear? And then you can give me the, the better stuff later. He starts off with, I mean, this is standard Christian stuff, but it's not always easy to truly embrace this. Uh, anyway, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I'm reading from the uh, Christian Standard Bible. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And then he continues on how we lived previously among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as were the others also, or the NIV says, as were all the rest. You couldn't start off with much worse three verses. I mean, the words here, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, you've previously lived in them, you've been disobedient, you're stuck, you're under the wrath of God, you're in a position of need, you have a rough predicament here. This is all over the Bible. Jeremiah will say, your heart is deceitfully wicked, who can understand it? Romans 3 will say, all have sinned and fall short, no one is righteous. There's versions of this everywhere, but the scripture starts with this idea that there is something wrong with me, with you, with this world that isn't fixable by us. This is where the Christian message starts, and it's so important to remind ourselves of this because if I'm trying to fix something I can't fix, that is not going to work. It never has. Anyway, Alexander Soltzen heights in Nobel Prize winner, 1970, arrested uh, because he spoke out against Russia. He's a Russian writer. Spoke out against Russia, uh, and he was in essentially a confinement place. Um, His comment was, after watching all the guards and the various oppressors of him and others, his comment was that the the line between good and evil doesn't run between nations or even so much between political parties. He was looking at two or three in his country that he was observing – it didn't even run between the guards and the victims the way he saw it as he was watching all this play out. He's like, the line of good and evil runs right down the human heart. And that's a great insight. Now, it, there are things that I think are wrong in the world. There's times when parties, and I'm not saying that. His point was, though, that this idea of sin and this nature that we have that's predisposed to rebelling is in every one of us. There's something about us that just wants to go sideways. I don't want to do what God says. Starts in the garden, continues throughout Scripture. I want to do it my way. I would like to choose my own version of how we're going to live. And the Scripture said that's a dangerous proposition. That's a problem. Because of that, you're fallen. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic writer that I always find so clever, he says, sin is the most empirically verifiable of all the doctrines. Just look in the paper. (laughs) Look in the data, look in your heart. It's, this is an easy one to prove. There's something is wrong with people. Why are people doing things like they're doing? Uh, and then you begin to get farther, and you're like, why am I doing things that I'm doing? Uh, but anyway, this is, this is the bad news. This is something that I want to make sure we're clear on. And do, do notice a couple words in there. By nature, that there's this sense of God's judgment. It's not that God's mad at us. God that, not that God's surprised. But a loving God who is just fully is going to have to be settled against evil. That's just not tolerable for God. That's just not acceptable. You want a God who's opposed to evil, who's opposed to indignities, who's opposed to injustice. We want that. And yet that very thing creates a problem for us when we're in our own lives because that means I may be on the wrong side of that line uh, at times. But this is, this is the text here, and it says everybody's got the same, everybody is the same way, just like all the rest. 
Doesn't matter your IQ. Doesn't matter your professional networks. Doesn't matter your height. Doesn't matter how big your family is. Doesn't matter how, you know, coordinated you are. When it comes to the sin nature deal, it is level at the cross. Every one of us is dealing with an issue here where we come up short. Now, it's also true that every one of us is made in the image of God. So these are so hard to hold together. You have a unique fingerprint, a unique DNA structure. You're conferred amazing worth by God, not by your friends, not by your achievements, not even by yourself, but God himself has said you're made in the image of God, and yet you're also someone with a problem who is dead in sin. Who is, these are just so hard to hold together, but you have to do it as a Christian. Infinitely valuable people, or inherently, I should say, valuable people, and yet fallen people predisposed to wrongdoing. And that's the nature of where we find things. And so this is where our text becomes much more positive. But you have to admit that. You have to acknowledge that as a Christian. You're not going to be able to solve your main problem on your own apart from Christ. And then he makes the turn in verse 4. And this is the part of the verse where you begin to realize, you just sang, our sins are many, but his mercy is more. Well, here's his version of saying that. This is where these songs come from. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. People who are dead are now alive. People have become, come to life, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. This is one of those great contrasting con- con- uh, conjunctions in your Bible. But God, here's your problem, but this happens a lot in our world. Uh, I was just listing a few that I've, I've saw, seen recently. Uh, usually it starts off with something like, no disrespect, but... I've noticed you're having a hard time keeping up. Or you're not as funny as you used to be, and I'm thinking, kind of felt like disrespect, <laughs> you know. Or, or another one I noticed was, uh, I never really watched TV, but, but, I, but I was, did you guys get a chance to see uh, This Is Us or The Crown or the NBA? And they like, list like seven shows, and I'm thinking, for someone who never watches, you seem to have a lot of, okay. Uh, I really like your outfit. I mean, the colors are crisp. It looks fashionable. Do you think it fits? You're, I mean, I, I don't want to take us down a rabbit trail, but do you think there's going to be pets in heaven? We were talking about prayer and work. How did, <laughs> what? That feels like a rabbit trail. It feels like a rabbit trail. Uh, you're normally a good driver. You are normally a good driver, but I don't want to micromanage. I would not want to tell you how to do things, but that's how it goes. And usually, the second half of it overwhelms the first, right? I mean, the person drops the, uh, you think it fits. Well, it doesn't matter what you said about the color. I mean, come on. That kills it. But here, it actually works in the positive. The, the problem that was up front gets overwhelmed by what happens at the end. The solution is better than the problem, which is awesome. My sins are many. Your mercy is more. And so that's what he's doing in here. Just look at a few of these verses again. And I'll, I'll read a few. Um, and then I want to talk about this idea of grace. But he made us alive, verse 6. He also raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. He did that. So he, he's, the one who can un, he's the one who can undo it. You can't undo that. That's what he does. So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace. He wants to display the immeasurable riches of his grace 
through people on mission trip, loving people, caring for children, fixing places. But he's saying that's what he's going to display the riches of his grace through the kindness he's shown to you. God's going to do that through you, but it, it comes from his ability to change you. And then it says, I'll just read the rest of the text. You may recognize these verses. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. It is a gift. Salvation is a gift received. It is not a transaction that you pulled off. It is not something you earned. He couldn't be clearer. Not from yourselves so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so these are just some great ideas in here. But these, these, this but God stuff, it happens periodically in Scripture. In Joseph's story, you intended to harm me, brothers, but God intended this for good. Or the choosing of King David when he was perplexed. God says, man looks on the outward appearance. Don't, don't look at his heart, his, he- his height, his muscle st- structure. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so you begin to have this idea. Or... Jesus tells a parable in Luke 12. Oh, you've stored up so many things. You've been so successful. You've been so wealthy. You have so many barns. You have everything. But you're a fool because this very night, (laughs) it's all over for you. And so you begin to see that that the second part is greater than the first. And here, the second part is grace. Grace is greater than the problem that we have. We're made new. All in Adam died and death was introduced. But in Christ, it's possible to be made alive And a person can be remade in the way that God wants them to be. So we're made in the image of God by creation, but we have to be adopted into his family by faith in Christ and essentially be remade along the lines of his son. That's the basic theology of things. So my question is, why is this so hard to understand? I mean, over and over God does this. He delivers them in the Exodus, and then he explains to them through the law and the problem what he did. Jesus comes, he does the perfect life, sacrificial death, glorious resurrection, and then all of a sudden he has epistle after epistle after epistle, letters telling us what happened. I'm explaining to you what actually took place back here so you can fully appreciate it. And that's what I'm asking us to do right now. This is sort of the core story. And I have found few things more, I mean, anytime I talk about grace, I'm like, I think I got it closer, but I always feel inadequate talking about grace or faith because they're just so powerful. I just and you don't outgrow them. Just because you've been doing this for a while, you've been around it, you don't need less grace. Or you don't have mastered grace. Like, you're going to keep coming back to this. And we use the term loosely, like grace before a meal. I say grace. That's thanks. It's it's nice. That's nice. But he's talking about a little more than that. Or you're running late on your assignment, and the teacher gives you an extra two weeks. So that's usually called a grace period. It's like a bonus gift that you have. That's accurate in there. Or, Or there's a dancer or an artist or someone who's very fluid and classy the way they do it. And you're like, that's graceful. It's full of grace. And it looks really good. But what he's talking about here is something that has to do with favor in God's eyes. Favor that's being given to you that you couldn't possibly earn. You wouldn't have even known to ask for. Here's a clip from the Bible Project. I, I ask uh, Nate to excerpt a part of it. Hopefully this will make sense. This is, this is a quick little Bible uh, clip from the, you, you can see it. Like when God rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and they quickly betray him by giving their allegiance to a golden idol as their God. But then, Moses steps in and asks God to consider giving a gift that they don't deserve. 
And God says, yes, by showing the ultimate act of chen, forgiveness and a promise to be with his people. This character trait of God is so reliable that over 40 times in the book of Psalms, people cry out for God's chen when they're sick or in danger or when the Israelites are in exile. And the biblical prophets like Isaiah looked back to God's chen in the past and boldly declared that God will one day show chen to his people by delivering them and all creation from death and ruin. Now, when we turn to the authors of the New Testament, they describe God's chen with the Greek word charis, which means gracious gift. Like when we're introduced to Jesus in the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus is God's glorious charis become human, sent into a world of people trapped in darkness and death. Because according to the Apostle Paul, we're like the living dead. God has handed humanity over to the destructive consequences of our selfish decisions. But, Paul says, God is rich in mercy, and by his charis, he's rescued us. He's talking about how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are offered to us as a generous gift of life that is more powerful than death. And as with any gift, all one has to do is receive it. So. Now you can see why the biblical authors talk so much about this description of God's character throughout the Bible. When people are willing to own their failures and ask God for chen, he has a consistent and generous response. God gives the gift of himself, his life and his love. And this is what it means that God is gracious. So that's one excerpt of thinking about the idea of God giving of himself and his nature unearned by us. Now, the grace comes to us. It's not from us. It's from God. It's for us. The story's not ultimately about us. I mean, we're part of the story. God's using us in the story. But the story ultimately, the gospel, is about Jesus and what he has done uh, for us. And as that intersects with us, we begin to tap into this grace. So I wish I could say, Everybody has come from very grace-filled environments. You know all about grace naturally in your home, in your schools, in every sports team you've played on. But my guess is that's not true. It's just not true. Often we've had to undo lots of things in our brains to even get our head around grace. It's a compelling idea, but it's also just rare. And, and it doesn't seem to work in some of the marketplace and some of the other arenas that we're in. So I wanted to just turn a couple thoughts over. Uh, with you in, in hopes that it will help make sense of grace. You're going to spend your life grappling with grace. And by grappling, I mean you're going to wrestle with grace. How does it work? And I actually think over time, grace is going to wrestle with you a little bit. And grace is going to take you to places where you're like, oh, wow, I really need grace. I'm not half as sharper on top of things as I thought. Anyway, that's my thought. So here's one thought. This comes from uh, my own observations of the Gospels. If grace does not make you uncomfortable, it's probably not the same grace, grace Jesus talked about. <laughs> Prodigal sons being welcomed home and partied and celebrated over? Oh, let's leave the 99 and go head out for the one who's lost. It just doesn't make sense on any kind of normal calculation level. And yet, Jesus repeatedly tells stories that talk about grace like this. And when you hear them, you love them, don't you? Like, oh, that's awesome that God would go that far and be that interested and that willing to overcome those obstacles. There's something awesome about it. But another part of it is like, wait a minute, that can't. Really? And then he has interactions with someone like Zacchaeus, who's an unscrupulous business person. And all of a sudden, he gets captured by grace. Or there's a woman at a well who's got a 
very compromised present and kind of a sketchy past, wow, she just gets captured in John 4 by the gospel, and she becomes someone different. And they're all over your Bible where people just encounter things. The thief on the cross has to be the most startling one to me of all. I mean, like, what has this guy got going for him? Other than at some point he saw something unique in Jesus and he asked to connect with Jesus. And Jesus said, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that for you. But that's not a life you're looking to emulate, get it wrong till the last moment. But there is something about it that's awesome, isn't it? That grace can even reach the desperate situation. Now, he still had major consequences, and often we do. So the text ends with God has created in us good works for us to do. At this grace is going to enable us to do things. And the first one he talks about in the 11th verse will be Jews interacting with Gentiles. Crossing of boundaries is the first one he actually presents as amazing work of God. And you'll see it all over the book of Acts. Peter's now interacting with people that used to be unclean to him. Others are interacting with the Ethiopian eunuchs, so the gospel's in Africa. Others are heading to Macedonia. The gospel's going to Europe. Thomas is likely going to Asia. So the gospel immediately starts launching in all these places, and it's because the gospel is available to every group. You will not meet a person, I will not meet a person that I can't tell them God loves them and would love to have a relationship with them. You realize how awesome that is? I don't have to self-select. Oh, no, you're... You're probably not what God would be, be interested in. No, I don't do that. It would be ridiculous. God has a way of connecting and crossing boundaries. That's just fantastic to think. Of. All right, second thought. This comes from a hymn that we used to sing that I remember. Grace, grace, match. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. We kind of sang about that. Day. That's a wild idea. There must be a lot of grace because there is a lot of sin. I mean, I don't know how much grace there is. I don't know how you add it up, but there must be a mountain upon mountain of grace for it to cover all the stuff. Another way that the scriptures talk about, this is Romans 5.20, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So whatever sin was doing, grace is sturdy enough and is up to the task to overcome sin. That's what you have to really struggle with. Do you think grace in your life and in the lives of others is strong enough to actually bring about change and overcome sin. It is hard to believe sometimes. <laughs> I believe it when I see it on the cross with Jesus, but it is hard for me to actually work that out sometimes, and yet that's what Scripture is affirming in here. Here's a different angle, another quote that I think we need to hold in there. This is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was uh, arrested for his faith and ultimately died in World War II for trying to resist some of the Nazi regime. He talked a lot about cheap grace. He has books on this. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. So as much as it's an unmerited gift, he's also saying it then makes a demand on you, which is interesting. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus living and incarnate. And what he lived through and saw is he's like, to really follow Jesus is actually going to cost you something at some point. When he invites you to come and follow him, there is a cost to that. Now, it's not a cost you paid up front. Jesus paid it up front. But it will cost you something in following. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind in there. Another one of the, the famous lines, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr said, or Richard Niebuhr, his brother said this one time, he said that when you get away from the cross and you just start talking about Jesus' ethical principles and live like him, what, what you end up doing is you end up having a God without wrath bringing men and women who are not sinners into a kingdom without judgment by means of a Christ without a cross. And what he's saying is, 
there is a cross at the middle of this. There is a payment. There is a substitution. There is a costly thing in the middle of it. It's not just Jesus saying, hey, try a few new ways of living. Be a little better. It's Jesus saying, I am the way. You need to follow me, but I will also do something for you that has to be done. Interesting idea, cheap grace. Here's one from a current song, Holy Water by We the Kingdom. And I like this idea. They end the song with this little refrain. I don't want to abuse your grace. Again, cheap grace. I don't want to abuse it. Grace isn't amazing. I don't want to abuse it. I don't want to abuse your grace. God, I need it every day. It's the only thing that ever really makes me want to change. I think this is the, the rub. God's favor, God's grace, God's gift somehow makes you want to change. It's not the language of duty and force. It's the language of love. It's like knowing someone will forgive me. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to abuse that person or myself? And why would I incur those consequences? But this is an interesting idea, and over and over you'll see it in Scripture, where grace somehow makes you want to change. I hope you believe that. I hope that when you experience God's grace and you see struggles and you can't seem to get over stuff, there's something about going back to grace that actually gives you the power to do something different. I don't know how it works. I really don't. But I've seen it happen in students over and over, and I've seen myself Something about thinking about this, embracing grace, all of a sudden makes me want to go a different direction. It just has power somehow in it to do that. It's got to be tied up in the Holy Spirit. It's got to be tied up in God's thinking. I don't know, but I wouldn't have come up with this system. Like, how do we get right with God? You obey, you get it right, and we work it out, and boom, you're okay. God's like, no, no, that's not going to be a system that ever works. We're going to have to put some grace up front. We're going to have to have a lot of grace infused a lot of places along the way. And out of that, we're going to see change come about. It's just remarkable. But it's the way Scripture teaches. Last one thought that I've found interesting, because I work with young adults, and most interesting, one of the more interesting questions I got was, wow, that must be hard to get young adults not to sin. And I thought, wow, is that my job? <laughs> I, you know, it'd be kind of hard to get adults not to sin. It'd be kind of hard to get you. It'd be, it, that, that's kind of outside the job description. I mean, I would like for that to happen. I don't want them to. But I can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Only God in his own calling, wooing, loving way can get people to want to make changes in their life. But the idea that I like here is there's as much in grace in front of us as there is behind us. Some of us are aware of that. That's why we do communion, the Eucharist, Lord's Supper, we observe. We're aware of the grace that we had to come. But you need to know there is still grace for you. And that is going to be helpful to know as you battle some of the stuff that's hard to battle in our lives or doesn't naturally replace itself. It is there for you. And when you find yourself asking the question, will God forgive me for what I'm about to do? I, by the way, I think the answer is yes. And I think the consequences may be real for you. I think the answer is yes. But the question is really twisted, isn't it? It's like, it's like I don't really believe God enough that his way would be better, so I'm coming up with a separate one. Or, uh, will God forgive me for what I'm about to it's, it's just a twisted, the question's off. But it is a real question. And it's worth thinking about. And at some point, you're going to have to say, is obedience worth it? And I think grace will help you say, you know, I think it is. I actually think it is. And when you make a turn in an area you haven't been able to see victory in, oh, my goodness, the things happen in your life. You take off. You go on a mission trip. You try something new. It's amazing how you start to see change come, not because you had to, not because you were forced to, but there was just, I don't know, grace is a remarkable thing. It propels you. It just sort of launches you in ways that I don't know. I would be inclined to say, here's what you got to do. Here's what you got to do. And God says, actually, here's what I've done. Here's what I've done for you. And out of that, you can now do some stuff. Um, that's, that's the Christian message.
If I had to put an emoji on this text, it would probably be one of those scratching my head ones or, <laughs> or ones where you're kind of like, really? Is this how grace works? Or one of the bug eye ones, you know, where it's like, I don't, that doesn't seem right. Seems like you get away with that. That just doesn't seem like a good system. But that's the system. And he'll go on and tell you a lot of things to do. But you've got to be clear on this, friends. And I want all of us, I just don't think you can grow without it. You're going to have to keep coming back to grace, recognizing the power it has in healing your past, changing your present, and giving you a chance for a different kind of future. That's how grace works. It's wonderful. It's needed by everyone. And it's just not the kind of thing I think we would have come up with apart from the scriptures. So I don't know where you stand in relation to grace. But I hope you're drawn to it. I've experienced it at some point. And let me just pray that we'll get a better handle on that as, as, as we do our stuff. Lord, texts like this don't have any to-dos in them. You're not telling us what we're supposed to do, but you are telling us how we're supposed to think about what you've done and how we're supposed to trust in what you've done and how we're supposed to rely on the power that you've given us. And so my prayer for the folks here today is that we would trust your grace and that we would allow you to do through us what you've intended all along, and that I'd become the David Bushman you wanted me to be, and that people here would become the Steve, Mark, Sam that you want them to be, Alice, whoever. Help them to become the person you want to be through your grace and through your sort of pulling, gracious, wooing power in their lives. Thanks for grace, Lord. It's amazing. In your name, amen.